podcast for November 19th, 2010. Let me go around the virtual table and introduce the guys. We have Mr. Jeff Simpson, author of the fabulous Simpson on Vegas column over on 2A Hard 3. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. Charles S. Monster from VegasChipping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Hunter, I want you to know that I have a, a cocktail in hand. Excellent. And I am starting this weekend off with you guys with a toast I love you guys. It was great to see you at the podcast, Palooza. Cheers. Cheers, indeed. Yes, we usually record on Thursday afternoons, but um, due to scheduling conflicts, we switched to Friday. So we are uh, about to start the weekend once we uh, finish um, prognosticating. Uh, Last but not least, Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey, great to be here. My name's Hunter Hilligus. You can find me at RateVegas.com. And before we get into our topics, well, just a quick little recap. We did have our podcast at Palooza, I guess, two, three weeks ago on tomorrow, something like that. Um, Something like that. I think that's right. We had a lot of fun. I'm speaking for everyone here. Um, It was great. I think uh, we had our guest, Tom McCartney from the Tropicana, who uh, I I think had a good time. He was, I think, a good guest. He was funny. He was interesting. He he uh, he is well versed in the parking strategies at the Tropicana, <laughs> um, and uh, it was good. I thought it was a fun show. So thank you so much for everybody that came. If you're interested in um, listening to the show, it's up on the feed. You probably already heard it, but just so you know. And um, yeah, it was great. So uh, thanks again for coming. Um, all right, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, let's see. So, uh, in the last three weeks since we did a show, well, actually, I guess it's our last show was sort of a special format, so we haven't really talked about news topics for a while, but there's been a, seems like there's been a lot of stories recently, some probably more interesting than others, but, um, and some maybe don't need a lot of discussion, but there's a lot of interesting stuff. I'm going to start with Harris, um, who, you know, had announced recently that they were going to be. Uh, re-IPOing some of their shares. The company went private a few years ago, uh, and um, the the folks that uh, are controlling the company were going to try and pull some money out. Uh, Only it was announced, was it this morning or yesterday, uh, that the IPO is being canceled. The party has been canceled. This morning. Yeah, this morning. <laughs> so the party has officially been canceled. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It, it's, they, they they had talked about, you know, using some of this capital to complete the uh, the newest tower at, uh, at Caesar's Palace and this Project Link debacle thing that they were going to build in that, you know, gross alleyway filled with garbage between the Flamingo and, um, and uh, whatchamacallit. O'Shea's or whatever's next door. Um, so, you know, why was this canceled? Uh, is it just a lack of uh, the market just wasn't going to give them what they wanted and they couldn't place it at the value that they were looking for? Jeff, do you know? Yeah, whenever that happens, that's almost always why. They didn't um, give an explanation in their statement, but certainly it's uh, it was a lack of of sufficient interest, at least at the price that they've uh, targeted. I think the range was um, maybe 13 to 15 or 15 to 17 or something like that. I I forget, but I know they wanted to raise uh, about uh, 
a little less than two thirds of a billion dollars. Um, and you know, the whole way this, this thing set up originally, uh, they, it was such a small IPO and they had to do it by virtue of their sale of, or trade of equity for debt, um, from that, uh, Paulson group. Um, and so they, part of the deal was that he would be able to, um, you know, if you list it publicly, it obviously allows equity owners to get in and out of their positions more easily. And, uh, he evidently wanted the flexibility to do it so that Harris wouldn't hammer him down on debt like all the other debt holders have um, experienced. So, you know, it's not a good thing for them. Um, they've also um, de- um, delayed the change of their name from Harris to Caesars. You know, in the long run, I think that you know what they'll do is they're going to figure out exactly. You know, do they want to sell? You know, if they can't get 16, let's say, will they do it at 14 or 13? You know, um, the last time I remember in the casino sphere um, seeing IPO shares um, have um, so much trouble was the uh, initial public offering for Wynn Resorts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I covered that very closely and uh, was talking to Wynn almost every day. And, you know, they had initially initially thought, oh, we're going to come out at $21, $22, $23. And, uh, you know, it was a slow market. And, uh, you know, his share, you know, it was delayed a couple days. And he eventually came out at I think thirteen dollars. Yeah, I think and, right. and yet, I mean, had you know everyone who may, you know, and and what was hilarious? I mean, all these analysts. I mean, I can't tell you how many analysts were saying, "Oh, you know, you're a fool if you buy in there. That thing's going to be hammered down to five bucks." You know, this company doesn't even have a casino, and you know, you're going to have to wait for a couple of years for money to come in, and. uh you know, those analysts proved to be about as ignorant as could be. And uh, the the people who bought at $13 um, have have never had a reason to, uh, you know, regret that, that decision. I think Harris is victimized by its um, problems with its debt over the past years. I think a lot of people have seen what Harris has done after they went private. And, uh, you know, they've been a company that has – Prove, proven willing to you know time and again to to really hammer those people who bought their bought its debt. So I think that that's you know it's just been a a bad relationship with its debt investors, and that's translated into the equity uh, side of the equation. So so Chuck Project Link, how <laughs> upset are you that you won't be able to ride the Ferris wheel anytime soon? I'm not upset at all, Hunter. Uh, you know, I think what, what what people don't know about the, the Harris IPO is actually they were using this money not to do these upgrades and, you know, the snarky comment of, of painting the Paris balloon, but they actually were trying to pay for Rita Rudner's contract. But now that Rita has left to go to LDS, they don't need the money anymore, so they canceled the IPO. You know that that makes perfect sense. I hadn't heard that, but I I can totally understand how uh, how that may have played out. Yeah, and she's um, worth every penny of it. Trust me. 
I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> uh, if you're listening, Rita, we love you. Thanks for doing this. Episode. We really appreciate it. Um, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, it, it is. Uh, I I wasn't expecting this. Uh, we saw MGM um, go back to the capital markets, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and was able to raise some money. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting to see Harris having to back off on this one and having to kind of just kind <clears> of <throat> hope that they can, uh, live to fight another day, I guess. But, um, it's, it's just another data point in, in that whole equation. Um, all right. Unless there's anything else on this topic, I think we're uh, probably good to move on. Um, could I add, add one thing first, Dave, did you see Gary Loveman's speech at G2E? I did not. You know, one of the things, um, a couple things that are related to, that our hair is related, um, if it's okay with you, Hunter. Um, one of the things that, you know, Gary Loveman gave this, gave this speech about uh, um, the casino industry is treated too much like a sin industry and even some companies in the casino business use that to exploit advantages when they're competing against others for, uh, you know, limited casino licenses. And this is a, uh, a wine he's uncorked before. Um, Gary Loveman, you know, a, a couple things about Loveman. One, he has the most, t- the, the most tin ear of all the casino executives in terms of what the public wants to hear. Um, he went before the gaming regulators in Nevada and told them that they're too intrusive. Um, he has for, for more than half a decade been complaining about how the casino um, industry is treated differently and that it's just a valuable service that people in the community want and desire and that they shouldn't be limited by any kind of, you know, ridiculous state interference. Um, and, and, and that just shows you know how out of touch he really is with the gambling part of the business. He he understands marketing. He understands the business side, um, and, but he just doesn't understand the history of the casino business, where it's come from, the way people feel about it in all in all the states. You know, in all the different states, different uh, municipalities. Sure, I'm sure they do their research, and he reads what people think and don't think, but. Um, for some reason, he just never can square with with reality, the political reality in the United States. So that's a negative, I think, about Loveman. But I think another thing when we talk about the IPO today, I don't know that we should blame that on Loveman. I think Loveman gets a bad rap, uh, maybe from us, certainly from uh, a lot of other um, you know bloggers and commentators because the companies had – trouble since it did that um, private equity takeover. But I think when you look at what his job was, when he was running the publicly traded Harris before Apollo and TPG to, uh, bought it, um, he his job was to maximize shareholder value. And what he did was he, he, he thought the shares weren't valued highly enough. Um, he obviously talked to his shareholders. He got a terrific price for those people. You know, Baron Hilton, you know, should be thanking his lucky stars for Gary Loveman because otherwise you can be sure Harris stock would be way less 
than it was when Barry or when Baron Hilton sold his stock. Gary Lubman did a great job for his shareholders. He was a master salesman um, to get Texas Pacific and Apollo to buy it out. Now, maybe those guys think that, you know, he wasn't accurate enough or, you know, he misled them. And I don't know whether that's true. Um, but, you know, he certainly did well for his prior shareholders. So those are just a couple Harris-related things I thought that, um, you know, Gar- Gary Lubman has done well for shareholders before. Um, but I think that he really has a uh, tin ear when it comes to the political realities of uh, gaming expansion in the United States. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's probably one of the most boring gaming CEOs out there. But, uh, you know, uh, I think there's no doubt that he's, um, you know, a very smart guy. And he's developed procedures and processes at the company that have made them a ton of money. Their approach um, sometimes is maybe seen as a little bit too analytical, but it is definitely a big cash generator. So, you know, it is what it is. They're not trying to be, um, you know, a Wynn Resorts or, a, you know, some of these other companies that are trying to come at it from a different perspective. If I can pipe in for a second. Pipe away. I, I think they're being, <laughs> you know, I think maybe he's being a little bit disingenuous with this whole everybody's beating up on this stuff. Because the company has such a great mass of data about the about the habits of gamblers, I think they could do a tremendous service to themselves in the industry by letting scholars look at this and say, "Hey, you know, the average person gambling is not, you know, is not a compulsive gambler. This is a habit. They gamble for this long. They gamble within their means. I think, you know, they might do themselves some good by opening up." some of their data and obviously making it anonymous and not (laughs) tied to it. But I think that would be, you know, if he was really sincere about trying to correct these, what he views as misconceptions, that's certainly one step they could take. Spoken like a true academic. (laughs) With no self-interest at all. (laughs) Honestly, no. I mean, I I don't care who they make available to. I would just love to, I'd be, I'm just curious to see what what would come out of it. I don't it, care. It is a legitimate point. He, they do have that data, and if he's going to be, be saying on one hand, look, you know, we're totally painted with this broad brush that we're not being accurately portrayed, well, you're right. He, they could do something about it if they wanted to. My recollection, though, is that they have funded some studies in the past. Is that not correct? Um, but not with their data. Not their own I, data. So it was just you know, outside. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, and really the kind of stuff I'm looking at is people saying, you know, people who call me and say, well, what? You know, what percentage of blackjack players are men versus women? I've got no idea because I can't be in the casino finding everybody who plays blackjack. But, you know, if with the information that they have, the casino is a much better idea. Right. Isn't that what interns are for? Can you you get some college students to stand there and count people? That would be be the best job ever. I think that. Hanging out at the casino and watching people gamble. There are worse gigs. Yeah. For for a company like Harris, or maybe even more interestingly for us in Las Vegas, a company like Station or Boyd, um, I think that for them, if they would release what I think would be very interesting, um, uh, you know, from among their uh, collection of data, would be what sliver of of players gives you, you know, X amount of your play in terms of how much money do you win like your top 10 percent of players how much play do you get from those players in a year 
on average, how much of your total revenue comes from that top 10%. And I think that, you know, the the problem gambling critics of the industry, you know, they have a, um, you know, a, a constant thing that they're saying is that, um, you know, a fairly significant chunk of the, of the industry's profit, um, or at least revenue now, um, comes from problem gamblers. And the industry always says, oh, no, that's not true. Um, but I would really like to see, um, you know, is there a 5% or 10% slice at the top that averages, you know, I, I, w- I would almost bet you that at Station Casinos and at Boyd Gaming here in Las Vegas, where people have ready access to casinos, um, at all hours of the day, at not not very far away from home, that there are people who play more than forty hours a week, maybe even eighty hours a week, and 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 you know that's pretty incredible um, when you consider there's only what one hundred and sixty eight hours a week, um, and you know so stations should be able to look at that and say you know not that they're you know I mean not that necessarily someone who plays. 40 hours a week is a problem gambler or 60, but I'd like to be able to look at those in association with revenue numbers and see exactly where the money comes from, from their uh, client base. I mean, and I just don't see them ever willingly doing, doing that, but I think it would be pretty interesting. I don't disagree. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of on my mind because I've had, you know, visiting out of town academics and some folks, you know, who get this really snooty attitude were like, well, don't, of course, they give you this information, you know? I'm like, well, no. Well, can't you get it from them? I'm like, no. So it's, uh, yeah, I just have that. So from the, uh, the, the University de Paris or something? Who are these yeah, people? Yeah, this is very, like, snooty. Like, you must have this information of who to, I'm like, no, why would they give me that? You know, that's their proprietary information there, you know? You give me your information. So, yeah, that's why. But I think legitimately this this would be a really interesting tool for people to study gambling and to really set the record straight. I think it would do it, – it would, it would probably do wonders. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, hopefully someday um, some of this, you know, older data that may not be as commercially um, relevant and, you know, they see, see as such a competitive advantage that they couldn't ever make it public, they could – Hopefully there would be some way that it could be scrubbed and and uh, and used for these kinds of purposes because I think that you're right. It could be very, uh, very interesting. All right. I'm going to move on and talk about the uh, the Cosmopolitan. I, w- I was surfing the internet the other the other day, and I found <laughs> out that there's a, a new hotel opening in Las Vegas, which I was surprised. I thought that Las Vegas was over and that nothing was ever opening again. But apparently there's a new hotel opening like in like a month. It's called the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. You may have heard of it. Um, it's uh, for those that aren't uh, paying attention. It's located between the Bellagio and um, and what uh, Jockey Club? Oh, yes, it, right. It's <laughs> it's right up next to the Jockey Club. So if you've ever, for those that are regular Jockey Club visitors, um, you know exactly where it is. Um, the reason I'm mentioning the Cosmo uh, in, on the show today is because we're starting to see some uh, leaked. Photos and videos from inside the building, um, you know, more than we've seen in the past. Obviously, we've been watching it go up over the past uh, years and months as it's kicked into high gear. But now we're starting to see some of the stuff inside. Um, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal with a pretty uh, – with a sort of a wide shot of this uh, design centerpiece that they're going to be featuring, this basically massive kind of chandelier thing. 
Um, I got some video and a couple photos that I posted, and I, saw, I think also uh, Mr. Steve Fries posted a couple as well. Um, you know, Chuck, I know you've been following Cosmo very closely. A- as you're starting to see more, uh, what's your impression? I think it's great. I think yeah. it's gorgeous. I think the interiors are bright and fancy and elegant and technologically groovy. I love that uh, the uh, uh, server-based interior design thing. You know, it's like this is this the this is the stuff, man. A lot of this stuff kind of reminds me of what was going to go into the to Fontainebleau. They had that whole wall there that was going to be people's photos. So like tweeted photos or something would show up on the, on the walls outside and, and, you know, other kind of interactive displays. I don't know exactly how interactive these things are going to be, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's bridging the gap between modernism and classic European elegance, but in a more kind of slightly more uh, avant-garde kind of way. So I, I'm really excited about the things that uh, that that we've seen in the leaked photos, and can't wait to get in there and take a look around. It's going to be fun. Yeah, you know, um, one of the videos that Chuck is talking about is of these uh, sort of pillars that you, you're watching this video, and it looks like they're sort of illuminated um, bookshelves almost. And then all of a sudden, they go off, like they get turned off, and you realize that they're actually, you know, uh, LCD screens or whatever they're made out of, um, that they can change. They change these, des- these designs based on, you know, I'm sure, atmosphere, mood, time of day, all these different factors. And um, I can tell you the first time I saw that video, I was watching it, and I just kind of like went, "Oh, you know, it's like because I yeah. wasn't ex- I wasn't expecting that. That was one of those things no. I didn't I didn't know that they were going to do. And so when yeah. I saw it, I was like, "Oh, damn, that's awesome!" So yeah. yeah, that I agree. I think it's interesting and exciting. Um, you know, one thing I noticed the casino. And it's hard to tell from just a couple of blurry photos. The casino looks like it's. Uh, fairly densely populated. It looks like they're trying to cram a lot of machines into into. You know, they've got a pretty small footprint. I mean, you know, they're going very vertical due to the size of their very small, very small parcel. And you know, they may adjust some of this stuff as time goes on. I just hope it doesn't uh, feel too claustrophobic in there with a ton of machines squeezed in. Hunter, the uh, the thing that fascinates me about this Cosmopolitan project, and I'm and I'm very interested to find out more from the folks in charge is. Uh, how far along was the design process right. when it got foreclosed upon and right. where did they pick it up from? What did they change? And right. you know, exactly what was that kind of handoff like? Right. What percentage of what we're going to see do we really need to credit the Eichner team right. you know, versus the, the Unwin team or whoever? I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that's a totally fascinating question because we have a project that, you know, ownership changed fairly substantial, um, you know, amount of time had passed. Strategically, they changed, went from a condo hotel to to basically trying to get people to abandon their condos and move the thing back to a hotel project. They weren't completely successful with that, but they got a lot of people to do that. So they had these kind of major strategic shifts, probably a pretty major design shift. If you read that Wall Street Journal story, they talk about the original lobby 
uh, under Eichner where they were going to have like 28 foot tall robots that were going to dance to music, <laughs> which sounded so bizarre to me when I read that passage in the well in the journal story. I, I was trying to picture this, this something just out of some crazy. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. So whoever Sockum robots, yeah, that's exactly what I thought of. <laughs> that's exactly what I pictured in my head. And so whoever canceled that idea is. is was very wise because that would have been a disaster. It sounded sort of Epcot or something like that, which is which would have been ridiculous and outdated pretty quickly. That's the thing, right? Um, one of the things that I mean, I would say that a, a fairly substantial amount has been changed. The Deutsche Bank people are uh, are very casino savvy. Um, you know, they've played a big part in you know like the IPO at Wynn Resorts, um, and they've been a <clears throat> a strategic partner of most of the decent hotel companies in town. Um, and so I think that they were, <clears throat> they certainly knew what they were doing more than, you know, this, uh, you know, this Canadian condo builder. Um, and, you know, obviously the condo change made a big difference for them. Um, so I think, I think the one of the biggest things was getting the casino out as close as possible to the, to the street, on the ground floor, not making people have to go up to a second or third level to gamble. You know, the original plans, um, some of the casino executives in town would would roll their eyes um, about what, you know, was publicly reported by Eichner and his group. And it seems like most of those changes um, or, or those changes are pretty significant. Um, you know, I, I'm one of the things that's going to be interesting. We've heard b- about how, uh, you know, when questioned the ingress egress um, for the property, and it is such an amazingly odd footprint that the Cosmopolitan has. It's going, it is going to be interesting, and maybe in the Chinese way um, about, you know, to see how uh, how that works. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look. Uh, they have the parcel they have, but clearly this thing is like shoehorned into such a small amount of space, comparatively speaking. Um, it's it's you know almost unbelievable. It, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, I, I it's hard to imagine a recent opening that I think has been um, positioned so masterfully in terms of you know the amount the advertising and the social media outreach and that sort of thing that they've done i mean you compare it to a year ago uh and and the and the opening of aria um and even with the considerable resources that mgm mirage has they they got a lot of people to come and people were interested but there was a there's a very different feeling in terms of um you know, just people's people are just more excited about this. This, for some reason, feels fresher and newer. And maybe it's because it's going to be the last opening for a while, and people pretty much know that. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's entirely it. I think that you have to credit the way that they've gone about um, putting themselves out there uh, to for part of that. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it how it unrolls, and um, you know. I'm going to be there uh, for that opening, and I am excited, and uh, I'm definitely going to be documenting it uh, for everybody at home that uh, that can't make it. So it should be a lot of fun. One of, one of the things, Hunter, you had mentioned um, Fontainebleau, how, um, or maybe that was Chuck, but um, in terms of um, 
those two properties, Cosmopolitan and Fontainebleau, we've had a, a couple interesting newspaper stories, the Wall Street Journal story that uh, Alexander Burzon did on Cosmopolitan, and then <clears throat> Amanda Finnegan of The Sun did a um, piece with um, Penn National Gaming and their decision not to buy Fontainebleau. Right. And in a nutshell, they, they opted not to spend a little less than $200 million to buy Fontainebleau and then spend the $1.5 billion or so it would take to complete it. Um, and, you know, they're saying maybe they were a little too worried about City Center, and um, but it would have been a, a little less than $1.7 billion. Um, so if we just say $1.7 billion for them to have a completed Fontainebleau um, versus Deutsche Bank's decision after they already had a billion in. Now, in poker, you know that money you've already put in the pot, it doesn't really matter that it was your money. Right. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, 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 this, in this case, they had already put a billion in, and it was a question, is it worth three more billion to have that property um, to Deutsche Bank? And they said yes. Now, yeah. Cosmopolitan is smaller than right. Fontainebleau. It has a crazier footprint. It is located really in, you know, one of the best spots in Las Vegas, arguably way better than Fontainebleau. Not arguably. Uh, um, uh, inarguably, I guess, way better <laughs> than Fontainebleau. Thank you. Um, and uh, um, But uh, it, it's amazing that um, they made the decision that it's worth another $3 billion. And, you know, obviously there's the potential for continuing, um, you know, ha- having to plug additional money in um, once they open. Right. Um, you know, and, and so when you look at 1.7 verse 3, um, you got to think that for sure one of those entities made a mistake. Right. Um, you know, I, I made a, I put a post on on your blog, Hunter, just suggesting that it may be that they were both wrong. Maybe Deutsche Bank put in too much, and uh, you know, Penn National, um, you know, didn't um, have enough courage to make a smart decision. Um, but I think it's you know when you look at those two properties, for me, because they followed Cosmopolitan, um, you know, that's sort of the. Uh, you know, the, I'm going to look at those two properties, you know, in, in sort of comparison for a while and see what happens. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Penn National made a big blunder or if Deutsche Bank just said, you know, we have, you know, more money than we can use and let's just throw more good after bad. So well, it's going to be interesting to see. It's, you know, I was just as you were talking, I was thinking and it, it the, the, the cost of Cosmo is relatively staggering. When you compare it to you know other resorts of uh, of of recent years, but I was just you know Cosmo has got to be the highest cost per acre on the Las Vegas Strip, right? There's nothing else that could come close. No to that. doubt about it. It's almost as expensive as Win and Encore combined. I mean, Win, Win and Encore four point seven something right. billion. This is going to be four plus. Bellagio, way less. Now, obviously, construction costs and material costs lower in the late 90s, but the Spa Tower addition, um, you know, added some, but we're still talking, you know, less than four, um, even taking those other factors into account. I mean, that is that is staggering. Right. Um, 
you know, Fontainebleau a lot bigger in terms of rooms, in terms of, you know, the condos that they probably would have had to convert into additional rooms. Fontainebleau was not quite city center-esque, but on the scale of city center more than the scale of Cosmopolitan. So, yeah, it's a, it's amazing. Yeah, it really – I mean it's a significant sum um, and, you know, it's going to be – honestly – I think it's pretty clear that Deutsche Bank, though they are to be commended for kind of doubling down and uh, and opening the property and opening it in a high-class way, obviously they don't want to be long-term operator. Uh, that's just not – and I think they've said this, and other people definitely have said this. It's just that's not their business. They want to try and recover as much as they can from their investment that they've already made. You might and, say they quadrupled down. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's going to be – hard for them to extricate themselves from this position unless this thing is a smashing success. Um, otherwise, you know, it's probably going to be uh, going to be a write down. Now, I know they've already written it down pretty significantly from its uh, original book value, but still, um, it's a lot of money we're talking about. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, people are watching Cosmo pretty closely, and it's um, it's been pretty interesting so far, and I think I'm sure it will continue to be so. I'm sure there's going to be, as we get, uh, you know, we're 26 days from opening now, so I'm sure that the uh, the leaks from inside the building will continue. All this kind of stuff that that uh, sort of increases many fold once uh, once more more and more people get access to uh, to see this stuff. So I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more, and uh, the opening's right around the corner. So to, to judge to judge Deutsche Bank, you gotta you you have to say okay, what when they eventually do sell it. Um, you take into account any profits that they earn off the place before they sell it, um, but you have you you would say did they sell it for three billion or more? Um, and and really the thing if they if they had said we're not going to build we're not going to finish it we're going to leave this partially finished property um, they would it would still have some value that they eventually could sell to someone even if the property was even if it was imploded. So there's a couple hundred million there probably, um, plus three billion. So you got to say, could they sell it for three point two or three point three billion? You know, I I just I mean, it, it's gonna the market's gonna have to turn right, and and it's gonna have to do well. It's hard so, to imagine that, right? I mean, yeah, when people are talking is. about people are talking about you know people maybe buying the Mirage for like north of a billion dollars, a property that has a long established history of profitability. It's got a lot of land, even some that could be more densely developed if they so desired. And that is, you know, we're a third of what we're talking about here. It's hard to imagine how they get to that number. Really, at least for me. Well, maybe they can sell it to Sam Nazarian for <laughs> for six billion and then he could plan to plan a ten billion dollar redevelopment of it. That sounds good. They can get the Astar folks to chip in some of oh, their yeah. some of their money that they Columbia got, Sussex? So. Hey, yeah, you, we got yeah. we got some buyers. Yeah, exactly. We we've solved this problem. Deutsche Bank, I demand my ten percent. <laughs> All right. We're gonna move on from Cosmo. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot more Cosmo in the coming weeks, but let's move on for now. I want to talk about diamonds and stars here for a minute. Um, the AAA and the mobile, I can never remember which one is which. I think AAA is the diamonds nice. and mobile is the stars. Mobile is the more exclusive, uh, AAA, they give them out at the grocery store. Um, 
So, you know, once again, these announcements have been made. Um, Win and Encore um, are the are the only uh, five-star joints, which is pretty hard to get, is my understanding, except for Skylofts. I mean, Skylofts is a non Well, it depends on how you, how you count it, but Win, Encore, and, and, and Win Skylofts. And Encore aren't five-star, only the Tower Suites are. That's correct. It's Encore Tower Suites and Win Tower Suites, plus Skylofts. So I guess those are basically sort of equivalent concepts. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, everyone else kind of ratchets in underneath that. Um, I want to talk about a couple things here. First, I want to talk about um, a ch- recent personnel change at Win and how that might impact service. And then I also want to talk a little bit about Bellagio because I know, Dave, you were there today. They were celebrating uh, being renamed. But I, first, I want to talk about Win. Um, you know, in the last couple weeks ago, we saw a, uh, I think, fairly surprising announcement that Andrew Pascal, who is Elaine Wynn's nephew, who is the president of Win and Encore, um, that you know, basically, he was responsible for the day-to-day operations of the of the Las Vegas properties. Has decided to leave Wynn Resorts, um, and he will be replaced by Marilyn Wynn, no relation, uh, who most recently is known for running properties at Harris. She's run Paris and Bally's and Planet Hollywood, and she's been in Las Vegas for, with Harris for a long time, and has had a lot of different roles. Um, obviously, a lot of experience, but. From my perspective, we're talking about two companies that have very different service profiles, very, very different kind of they're, – they're just very different culturally. You know, when um, you, you get the impression that they will uh, pretty much do anything to please a guest, especially a high-end guest, and that doesn't necessarily feel as quite true about Harris. Now, that may be sort of an unfair statement because I'm generalizing, um, but uh, – when when you say Harris, the first thing that doesn't come to mind is excellent service, um, for better or worse. They, that's just not the way that they are perceived. Uh, whereas you know, if you say Win, you might you might hear that. You might hear some other things too, but you might hear that. Pascal has been uh, went to great pains in the press release. They they went to great pains to imply that it wasn't some kind of a falling out. Though some people have speculated that it had something to do with the Win's divorce, given that Pascal is Elaine's nephew. Um, Pascal is oftenly, was often seen by some as sort of an heir apparent to Steve Wynn um, when he eventually does retire or leave the company. Um, you know, this was a surprise to me. Chuck, I know you talked to Jennifer Dunn at Wynn Resorts um, about this. She was, based on what you wrote, I got the impression she was very categorically clear that it has nothing to do with some kind of personal falling out. Yeah, it was uh... – a bit of a surprise, but not completely a surprise. Uh, uh, Andrew went to Mr. Wynn uh, six or so weeks ago and expressed to him uh, the desire to leave. And they agreed to keep everything kind of confidential until they found and could name a successor. So mm-hmm. uh, Jen was, you know, she seemed like she was upset, not, you know, visibly upset, but, you know, disappointed. Right. He's very well liked. People really enjoy him there. Uh, you know, he's always done a good job. But there was no, you know, not even a veiled inference that there was any kind of trouble under the hood here. It's, you know, yeah. it's pretty much he wanted to to leave. Now, we I, when I posted the story about this, we got a bunch of comments. People saying that Lane Wynn had bought a hotel in Beverly Hills, and he might. Be, I don't even know if this is huh? true. You know, yeah. Elaine Wynn may have bought a hotel in Beverly Hills, and he might be going off to help her with that. 
What? I've tried to find any information about it, and I couldn't find it. doesn't anything. make any sense. She's a director of Wind Resort. She's <laughs> not going to go out and start a competing company. That doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, I, I, this is a crackpot comment. Who knows? Yeah, I know. I just you – know, I think – I, I, I check this, out everything. You know? No, no. You should, as well, you should. I just – I'm as, as this is the first I've heard it, it just sounds crazy to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know it is it is interesting. Um, I'm I'm interested. I've talked to a couple of Win employees who are a little bit like, huh? They were um, surprised. They were um, worried. Um, they were uneasy. Um, I would say they were a little bit tentative about. They're just not sure what's going to happen. They like Andrew a lot. Um, they're just you know, of course, change always makes people nervous. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's what I'm. I'm more interested though to talk about kind of. The choice. I think Marilyn Wynn, I don't know her. I've never met her. I just know kind of her operational profile. Um, I, she, I guess, I don't know. Her name wouldn't have been in my short list only because I would have assumed that they probably would have promoted somebody internally. They have a lot of really good people right underneath um, Andrew's level that they could have chosen to elevate, but they decided not to. Um, I think it's interesting. I don't know. I'd be curious to get anybody else's sort of reaction to that if that was a surprise or whether this seems like a natural fit well the, the executive structure at Wynn Resorts is different than almost every other company um, no one should ever be under the illusion that any of these the executives like Andrew Pascal who I've known back from his days at WagerWorks right. a, a great guy smart guy obviously you know benefits from uh, from learning from Steve Wynn and um, you know, his aunt, um, Elaine, um, you know, but, but when you look at the way Wynn Resorts has been organized, it's never about, you know, like, okay, I'm, uh, I, I report to Mark Shore who reports to Steve Wynn and I, you know, everybody under me reports to me. It's right. not that kind of a hierarchical company. Um, and I've always described it, um, sort of in the best way as being sort of a cult, um, you know, uh, um, not in the bad way, not in the bad connotation of a cult, but, but there's a bunch of people of whom absolute devotion to the cause right. is required. Right. Um, you know, if Steve Wynn wants something done, he's around and he's, you know, you know, saying jump and everybody's saying how high. Um, but it's a very collegial company with an absolute dictator at the top. Um, but you know, whether it's Mark Shore, Mark Shore would certainly have influence. Um, and they have a whole group of people on the marketing side. You know, they have an absolute brilliant, um, top marketing person, Linda Chen. Um, you know, Wynn doesn't want to be surrounded by idiots. You know, he is a genius who surrounds himself with exceptionally capable people who work. You know, it, it, it seems surprising in an absolute dictatorship, but they work collegially. And I think that, you know, um, you know, obviously there's Tim Poster there. Andrew was there. Um, but it is not a typical company where you have people making decisions, um, you know, you know, on their own and then being called to account for it by the big boss later. You know, the big boss is involved. Um, you know, on the obviously on the design and architecture side, you have a bunch more incredibly talented people. I mean, you know, you know for a long time, his HR person, um, you know, was the best in the business. I mean, he surrounds himself with really, really good people 
capable people. And, and, and the Maryland win thing, quite frankly, stumped me as well. Um, you know, you, I have a conspiracy theory about it. And I also have like, you know, maybe they just recognize talent. Um, I don't know her that well, quite frankly. Um, but, but maybe she has done a really great job at Harris. Um, I know, I do know that, you know, three or four years ago, Harris was very interested in, in win resorts. Um, you know, whether it was working with them on a project, uh, partnering on a project, figuring a way to weasel into, you know, Wins Macau concession, all kinds of things. And it, I'm not saying it's, it's true, but I certainly would, would at least wonder whether, you know, this is a way for Harris to sort of take a look at Wynn Resorts, you know, or to understand the way it works and, uh, to have someone they're com- comfortable with at win. I mean, I, I could be totally off base here, and I'm sure all the win fans who listen to this podcast would probably hope I'm dead wrong. But, um, you know, I have long suspected that um, that could be a um, an eventual target for uh, for Gary Loveman. If, you know, you were talking about Wynn's sort of organizational structure, and it actually made me think of another company that I oftentimes sort of relate to to the way Wynn is set up in another industry, and that's Apple. Steve Jobs refers to Apple as like the world's biggest startup. You know, the very flat hierarchical kind of organization. They don't, they're not um, really super structured, but obviously they're a very big company as Wynn Resorts is also. Uh, but again, you know, very hands-on managers, very creative company. Um, and very successful company, and it's kind of uh, I think that's very true, and I think that does that does uh, play a big part in the kinds of people they choose for these roles. It's going to be interesting to see um, somebody that came from Harris, you know, how, how well she can adapt to a structure where one day your boss is, um, you know, one day uh, Steve Wynn is telling you what to do, and you've got a you've got X Y Z projects to accomplish. The next day, Mark Shore is taken, you know, taken on part of your workload, and then he's off again. And then, I mean, we are, you know, there there was a a Harris executive in the past that had this same job who uh, didn't last very long um, before Mary the property. Dina. Exactly before the property even opened, he basically said, um, "Yeah, well, I took the job thinking I was going to be the boss, but it turns out they kind of." You know, there's no, there is no one boss. You kind of just kind of got to roll with it, and everyone's expected to do a really great job. Um, and so it is an interesting situation. Um, but you know, I was a little bit surprised about their choice, but uh, I'm sure that everything will work out fine um, in the end. I'll be very interested to see what Pascal ends up doing. Uh, if we find out, especially if it's in hospitality, I kind of my personal pet theory is that he might get back into technology, but that's just uh, a hunch. It's got nothing to do with any fact-based reporting. Um, I just think uh, the impression that I got in talking in the brief conversations that I've had with him, only I've talked to him just a couple times really quickly. He obviously still really likes technology, and um, that was a an area where you know he was where he was before he came back to to working at Win. So who knows? We'll see. Um, it'll be interesting to see, but I want to talk about Bellagio here for a minute. Another former Win property, Dave. Moments ago, you were at—I assume you were at Bellagio. You were hanging out with Bellagio people. Mm-hmm. They are so excited about getting their diamonds. They have their diamonds. They love their diamonds. Explain what the scene was, what was going on, and what you learned. It was pretty cool. You know, first there was a little kind of party for some of the media folks up in Circo that I caught the tail end of, and they had. A lot of the executives there and, you know, kind of meet and greet stuff. Um, so that was kind of cool. The really cool thing was going down to Manja, the cafeteria, 
mm-hmm. and seeing what they did for the employees, uh-huh. which was honestly way cooler. Have um, you been down there before? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm writing, I'm writing this up. This is going to be next week's Vegas Seven. It might be two weeks after, a week after next week's Vegas Seven. But it was, it was really incredible. You know, it, they're kind of doing two things at once here. First, they were rolling out in the back of the house their M Life program. And getting people ready for that. So in their little M Life headquarters room, they had converted it into a club with a DJ and bands. And they also had this big M Life Monopoly thing where people oh were rolling dice and going around this big blown up Monopoly board and winning all these prizes and kind of cool. Every employee in recognition of this got the windows in their car cleaned by the valet <laughs> staff just to say thank uh, okay. you. Uh-huh. Now, the cooler thing was that the the food in the cafeteria was they had these signature dishes that were based on the dishes from the different high-end uh, restaurants, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So I think Prime had the burgundy braised short ribs. Um, Jasmine had barbecue pork buns. Pretty cool stuff. And it was just yeah. a really good vibe. Everyone seemed pretty happy, pretty excited. So it was a lot of fun. And I got to yeah. see some really neat people. You know, the, the employee dining rooms in some of those places, really specifically, like, it, based on my, my, albeit limited exposure, um, based on some tours and employees that have taken me around, the, the employee dining rooms, especially at the former, at the current and former wind properties, are actually pretty good. Um, you know, there, there are other, the nicest employee dining rooms I've ever seen. Um, and even, you know, MGM obviously has owned Bellagio for a while, but they've, uh, they've kept it up. At least appearances wise, I've heard some people, some employees, kind of griping about the food. But um, it is uh, it is interesting to see. And, and you know, obviously, Bellagio has had their four star designation for a long time. I, I it, let's see, this must have been two thousand two or so. Um, I remember uh, seeing a, a document. Uh, I guess the way that it, the way that it works when you've got a lot of juice with AAA, like. If you're kind of in danger of maybe losing your uh, rating, they they don't just you know show up one day and say sorry you're down to three. They they give you a chance to kind of fix your problems. Um, so if they come through and do their initial um, an initial check and you're not quite up to par, then they'll they'll give you sort of a warning and you have a chance to kind of fix things. And you know Bellagio went through kind of a tough period after it was acquired, where a lot of people kind of consider the service kind of took a dip before it. You know uh, I think most People would agree it's it's definitely come back from that, but there was sort of this dark period at Bellagio where uh, it didn't seem like they were putting a lot of capex in, and it uh, it it sort of suffered a little bit post acquisition, and this was kind of part of that. And it seemed like um, you know AAA kind of said, okay, well, you know, we're not quite, you know, our guy came in and wasn't that awesome, but we're kind of we're inclined to kind of forget about that if you can fix this stuff. I don't know that that. That kind of thing makes me take these designations a little bit less seriously, though it is important to know that they're not just service-based. There's a whole set of criteria that go along with it. So to be to qualify for the certain levels, there are certain things you have to have. Um, so it's kind of a dual-part designation. So it's not like it's worthless, but um, the, the, it's a system that benefits both sides, and so you kind of got to look at it through that lens um, whenever you whenever you consider it. But, yeah, you know, it's good to see. Um, I, I was a little bit surprised that maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but Mandarin Oriental didn't reach the uh, the highest level. You know, it's uh, I I assume that they were shooting for that, they but they didn't achieve it. So that's kind of interesting. 
Um, did they did they get raided, Mandarin Oriental? Yeah, aren't they, Chuck? You wrote about this today. Aren't they the same as four? Aren't they four, four star? They four were diamond, rated, four diamond. Yeah, they, they were rated in the Forbes stars. Oh, okay, the stars. But, the, uh, the diamonds, I haven't looked at the oh, okay. I get these so confused. I think... I think they were four, four in the stars, right? So they were that next level down, wow. which is not, which is not That's bad, crazy. but it's supposed That's to be, man, you know, Mandarin Oriental is supposed to be. That's crazy. I have a question for you guys. Maybe you would know this because Aria wasn't listed in any of this stuff. So I, I'm curious if they can say to Mobile or Forbes or whoever and say, you know, don't come this year. Yeah, I, my understanding is you apply. Come next you, year, you actually pay a fee, I think, to be considered. That's mm. my understanding. So it's it not probably like, covers the cost of the inspections and all. Yeah, that other and stuff. it doesn't guarantee you any kind of, um, you know, it doesn't guarantee your rating, but you you do pay sort of a consideration fee to be included. And if you don't take any action, or if you actively dissuade them, they don't come. That's why I asked about Mandarin. I was thinking possibly. You know, none of those properties on the uh, on city center had had done it this year, and they were waiting for next year to you know get their rating. Um, you know, the other ratings that we had recently, I think they have a ten year requirement. You have to have been in business ten years to get rated by the AOL Live Group. Um, didn't they? Or no, they did include Palazzo, but that there was a recent rankings of hotels that left Win and Encore off. Um, I th- think it was AOL, which was like one of the most ridiculous hotel rankings ever. And, you know, they can get pretty weird, but that was as weird as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just looking mm-hmm. at your post, Chuck. So the four stars were Bellagio. Um, the five stars were Encore Tower Suites and Wind Tower Suites plus Skylofts plus their spas and Alex and all that kind of crap. Um, yeah. Four stars were Bellagio, Encore, Four Seasons, Mandarin, M, Palazzo, Signature, Venetian, and Wind. So, so, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I was expecting Mandarin. That to means TI a... is gone and Mirage is gone because hmm. they were both four-star hotels. They're now no longer four-star hotels. They're not. And Golden Nugget is. Golden yeah. Nugget oh, Golden Nugget's you know, not on this list either. So it might be time to kind of like recheck all of these. Cause I know a lot of, for a yeah. long time, these guys were kind of like touting their, there are different rankings, and it may be that some of these things have shifted and nobody noticed. <laughs> and like yeah. Mirage and Golden Nugget have incredibly long streaks yeah. of four-star ratings. Yeah. And the other thing is I always get confused between the stars and the diamonds, and I'm, I'm <laughs> like constantly like just intersp- you know using one as the other when obviously they're pretty different right. in terms of how hard right. they are to attain. So I'm guilty right. of screwing that up on a pretty regular basis. Let's just say they're all ridiculous relative to the trippies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, just not not to get off on a tangent here, but um, you are Chuck. You are tallying the um, the uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? The nominations. Nomin- nominations, right? And so, when should people expect to vote? Are you not ready to announce a date? I am not ready to announce that. Okay. As as a member of the Price Waterhouse, not Cooper, <laughs> uh, Draper Price Waterhouse Coopers <laughs> Price. Waterhouse, I'm not allowed to display how right. the numbers are coagulated. Fair enough. <laughs> coagulated. <laughs> fair, fair enough. All right. Well, we will look for that announcement as it is available. All right. Um, it, we're at one hour. I'm hoping you guys have a little bit more time because I want to talk about MGM for a minute. You guys, can you hang out for a minute? Or 
Sure. You guys get it right. Okay. All right. I want to. We're going to try and squeeze in a little bit more here. Um, there was a story recently in the front, the front cover, front page of the um, recently re- reshuffled Las Vegas Review Journal um, that uh, was implying strongly that MGM was going to implode the Harmon Hotel. Um, which is their mm. only unopened component of City Center. It basically talks about um, basically it was at you know Howard Stuff wrote this piece, and as far as I can tell, that um, sort of that that concept is based on two things. One is uh, in their last quarterlies they talked about it's highly unlikely that the building will be used as it exists or something. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what they said. And then the other part was you know he did an interview with Bobby Baldwin who basically said I've got a building I can't use. In my mind, though, I see – you know, I, I would not be so quick to jump to MGM is going to implode the Harmon. I mean I, they're engaged in a lawsuit with the construction company Perini. They – both sides have an interest in making this seem as terrible as possible. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I'm, sort of my stance on this is I don't believe anything these guys say until the lawsuit is settled. Uh, if they decide to implode it after they win a judgment, then that's one thing, and I, you know, that could happen. But I, I'm, I'm not so quick to uh, to make a declarative statement that this building is coming down. A- am I why, wrong? Why would Perini have an interest in saying that the building is uh, as bad as possible? To no, me, actually, it seems like oh, no, the, it's the inverse. Being... No, right, the inverse. Uh, what I'm saying is, I, I, my, my point is, I don't believe anything either party says because they both have, you know. Sort of conflicted interests. Exactly. I think that's pretty wise. So, yeah, I can't. Yeah. I don't trust them. They're they're positioning themselves yeah. uh, to get the most out of whatever their respective position is. Although I've got to say, I believe I was on the internet, the interwebs, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I believe I was looking at a certain Vegas uh, website, and I saw a pretty robust discussion of this a day or two before I read about it in the RJ. You know, did you guys have that same experience? You know, I have that experience often. Yeah. <laughs> which is pretty cool. Which is pretty uh, cool, you, you know? I mean, I just think, I don't know, I, until the county, like, condemns this building, because I, I keep hearing people say the county has condemned the Harmon. And as far as I know, that has not happened. But that is not true. I don't think the county has condemned the building. I think the county it, said, um, w- you know, they obviously – showed that there were significant problems in the certification process. But as far as I know, MGM never actually applied for occupancy certificates for the Harmon because it never finished the Harmon. So as far as I know, the county is saying, look, you, it's like any other construction site at this point. You don't have TCOs. You can't let people in there. Um, they have decided to shut it down because there's ongoing litigation. But I think as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, the building hasn't been condemned. The building is part of an active lawsuit. And we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, you're right. And in the panel I had at G2E about City Center, there was a question. It was the first question, uh, you know, what's happening with the Harmon? And J.F. Finn, who's with Gensler, said, I'm under a gag order. I can't talk about the Harmon. And Paul Berry, who's a VP of Ops for Aria, said, basically, I can't talk about it either. So that kind of killed the discussion right there. So really, I mean, their official position is we can't say anything. Yeah, which leads me to believe that anything is possible right now. You know, yeah. I think the big the big question is once MGM and Perini settle their dispute, and that could take a very long time. I mean, if you remember, you know, Venetian and its contractors 
um, had that incredible long go, long standing battle about, um, over payment, and they didn't even have a question of you know construction blame. Um, this you know once that gets hashed out, then it becomes an issue of can the thing be salvaged? Could the county say it's suitable for occupancy? Would MGM want to use it? It seems like, you know, if they were just going to implode it, if there is a value to be had by keeping it and spending the money that they'd have to spend to finish it, um, you know, all those things would then be decided. Um, you know, it, I, it's it's very disappointing because that property when you looked at the models, when you looked at the, the conceptual drawings with its color and its position was so important to city center. I think that a completed and, you know, original height Harmon would have really created a, a you know, a, it would have been a much different, um, you know, looking property next to the Veer Towers with Aria and Vidara behind and, and next to Crystals, it, it's just a real shame. Um, you know, I can't imagine that they'd ever go back and say, let's implode it and start over and build it. But it's too darn bad because I think it was, a, you know, obviously we do, they don't need the capacity now. Right. And they don't have the money. And, you know, the market has changed. But it's just too darn bad that they couldn't have done a good job building the thing. Well, let's not forget, too, that half of it was supposed to be condos. And when, when they discovered the structural defects, you know, they tried to spin that a little bit as like, hey, this is kind of good news because the condo market's taking a shit and we don't need the space anyway. I mean, there was an undercurrent of that in that whole discussion. At what? That, a at publicly that traded a publicly traded company that's trying to avoid bankruptcy and borrow additional money tried to spin a story like that. <laughs> no. So I don't know. My personal take on this story is that the, the Harmon story is not over and there's a still that uh, anyone that is saying it's dead is uh, being a little bit premature. We're just going to have to wait and see. Um, well, we're about halfway through my list. Dave, quickly comment on your, um, your story uh, on M Resort that you did. I think it was Vegas Seven, right? That you, yeah, this uh, was this was really interesting. Um, the the guy somewhere in the food chain at Penn National, I called for a comment and actually kind of yelled at me. <laughs> like, go back and read the you know read the because I'd done some due diligence and I just I'm like you know I just need a quote from from you guys and this is your chance to say hello Vegas and. You know, this is what we're going to bring to town, and just got well. You know, we did a conference call. Go back and read the transcript of that. What Ooh, a prick! Right, and like I actually kind of yelled. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure it was a really busy day for. Me. And you know, that's not really a comment on the company or anything. Just as the one guy who was supposed to talk to the media. Uh, <laughs> that's a comment on the company. If they're putting that guy out there and he's that much of a prick, that's a comment on the company. <laughs> nah, he might have been having a busy day or something. But I got a chance to – so basically the story was hanging around the casino at M for a while, and then I got to talk to Anthony Marnell the third, and it was a pretty good discussion. I think kind of reading between the lines of what he didn't say, personally, I don't think he's going to be there that much longer because he was saying these things like, well, you know, this is going to be a great move for – the team, the team members, you know, in the long run and everybody here is going to be really happy in the long run. And he wasn't really using that. We so much, 
Yeah. Maybe right. I'm reading a little bit too much yeah. into that, but that's no, kind no, of the feeling I got from him. But even though it's nothing he said, and he did say, well, you know, we will have a big announcement soon, and you guys will be the first to know. He's just sad he can't pick up his meds in the casino anymore since they closed the pharmacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and gas up his car. He's despondent. <laughs> Pronouns are very important because it proves that he has emotionally separated himself from this. So that that's probably the hardest part than the, than the financial part. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's some, obviously this thing was like is his baby, and it's this whole process has got to have just been incredibly disappointing for him. Uh, you know, I know that there was a lot of um, distress uh, sort of expressed about the bidding process, and they were they were bidding as well. And I know people were confused and unhappy about how that went. So I, I'm sure that he was probably pretty upset after this happened. And now maybe he's just kind of reached that Zen point where he's okay with it. And he's just kind of moving on in his head. Yeah. The direct quote I have from him, I'm looking at my notes here. He said, thus far, I just asked him like, what's, what's this been like? He said, thus far, I've thoroughly enjoyed working with Penn. This is going to turn out to be a good thing for all team members over the long run. And over the long run, the resort will be even better. Well, they're going to, yeah, and I said, how about you? He said, well, there's no answer on myself yet. The conversations with, with Pan have been un- unbelievably positive. When we're ready, I'll inform you guys. In the meantime, I don't foresee any changes with the property. You know, the team members, the value, everything the property is built on is going to be there. Penn National excited, is excited about all that. They can bring value to the consumer. They're proud of what they bought. They're going to embrace it. They're going to make it better. I think they'll do that. And the customers should not expect any changes to their detriment. So, and then in a separate press release, they announced they were going to change the name to Carlinos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, that, I must have read that in my alternate reality. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine him staying. I don't know how they could work that out, but maybe. Who knows? You never know. I just, it seems, it doesn't seem like it would work with their strategy, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I, you know, whatever he does, I really hope this guy's running, running a casino this time next year because he, I think he really is good at it. <laughs> yeah, he's obviously a talent, and he's got talent in his family, and you know, I, I would assume they have uh, financial resources, and so I would be really surprised if you don't see him pop up again somewhere. Well, he actually doesn't. He maintain ownership of uh, two casinos in the thriving, thriving Laughlin market. I think he right. still has the Colorado yeah. Bell and the Edgewater, and he has a uh, um, sort of a rundown property in Pahrump. Um, not that those, you know, are big markets that most of our listeners are going to be checking out very often, but I don't think, um, even if he is, um, squeezed out at M, I think he'll still be in the business waiting for a way to return to the Las Vegas market. Yeah. Well, see, you remember that TV show, Viva Laughlin? He could kind of maybe bring that back. <laughs> that's I his, like that's his that's life That's pretty now. good that you remember that show. Oh, man, I like that show. It was canceled prematurely. Yeah, one episode, man. I liked it. I thought it was good. <laughs> All right. Um, I got tons more stuff, but we just don't have time. Um, some of this stuff won't keep, but, uh, you know, for those listeners out there, there's some interesting stories about uh, – um, Mr. Dan Lee and his relationship with Pinnacle. Um, Macau is uh, going to be restricting um, some casino expansion, and there was a, a story about the Las Vegas, the judgment against Las Vegas Sands that was nullified. We just don't have time to talk about it. Um, but we are going to do our Sure Bets segment. This is where each one of us gets to 
pimp something that we think uh, that we're enjoying and that we think you might. So um, we're going to go around the table and do that again this week. Um, Chuck, I'll start with you if that's okay. I would like to uh, put my sure bet behind Patron Tequila. <laughs> it's It goes well straight in the glass with an ice cube and a squeeze of lime or... If you want, you can add a little lemonade or limeade to it and a touch of triple sec and maybe a little, you know, a little salt around the rim or, you know, however you want it. I'm going to say that a sure bet is a bottle of Patron tequila. I'm glad that you're taking this segment so seriously. (laughs) I'm serious, man. I'm totally serious. All right. Well, you know, Patron, I'm not a tequila person myself, but um, many people like it. If you're going to drink tequila, you might as well drink good tequila or at least better than average tequila. Um, So, Chuck, thank you very much. Um, Dr. Dave, do you got something for us today? I do. This might be a little bit esoteric and this might be old news. I don't know. Today, for the first time, I got a business card with the new MGM Resorts International logo on it. And it's actually pretty cool. I like it. I actually like it a lot better than the old MGM Mirage logo. And Chuck, have do you have this logo anywhere? Yeah, have I you think seen so. it? Yeah. Okay. If not, I would scan this in and email it to you because I'd love to see you do the, your uh, little dissection of the, the stuff like you do for the, the websites. It'd be well, really you, cool. sh- you should do that anyway. Send it I to will me. then. Right. I will, yeah. It's, it's just really cool. You know, the lion looks a little bit more energized. I don't know why. Kind of moved a little bit off center. And he just he ate the movie more... company. He's, he's full now. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> the lion looks energized, the, the the font looks cool, it's a sans serif. So that is my step <laughs> today. Totally wow. moving in a new direction for the company. Wow. You can really Te- see it. It's tequila very... and sans serif fonts. Yeah. All right, <laughs> Jeff Simpson, what do you got? Well, I'm going to recommend uh, my favorite pizza place in uh, Las Vegas, um, Cetabella. Pizzeria um, here in Henderson, where I live. Um, it's uh, in the district. Um, it moved a couple years ago from a more distant outlying location in Henderson, and uh, it was recently picked by uh, by uh, the city's three leading food critics um, as one of the fifty best restaurants in Las Vegas. Um, they they make a vi- you know an art artisanal style. Um, Neapolitan pizza, it's very, you know, the partially uh, burnt crust, um, just very, very excellent, fresh, sort of thinly applied ingredients. Um, and uh, it's it's very moderately priced. I think a couple can easily eat there for, you know, in the $40 range. Um, you know, they have individual um, serving style pizzas, um, a decent small selection of appetizers and salads, but uh, it's in the district, um, very close to the Whole Foods store there. And uh, um, if, if if you are a person who has a rental car or you drive to Las Vegas, I would say that Cetabello is a uh, is a very budget friendly, um, awesome um, pizza joint here in town. Do they have tequila? I- <laughs> they do not have tequila. You know, inspired by Chuck, I was going to recommend Black Tar Heroin, but I didn't have Whoa! a brand. Ouch. But I didn't have a but I didn't Ouch. have a brand. So I thought I'd go with pizza. Ouch. Instead. You know, actually Oh, go ahead. Dragon the Dragon brand. Just <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Garcia's <laughs> Oh, ouch. That's probably uh not something you want to recommend for a friend. 
No. Um, <laughs> so Cetabella, actually, I've heard good things as well. My friend uh, Mike Dabransky, who uh, runs TastingLasVegas.com, was talking about it the other day. Uh, I have not been there, but I've heard good things. So, yeah, I like pizza, so it sounds good It is me. pretty awesome. For those that don't cool. know, the district is right next to Green Valley Ranch. So if you're trying to orient yourself um, and you're coming from out of town, that can kind of give you a, a marker um, out in Henderson. Um, my sure bet, I'm going to pick an iPhone app again, something I've been playing with that I've been enjoying, which is called Instagram. Instagram is like very, very simple photo sharing. Um, basically, uh, you follow people and you post. There's no really – I mean you can leave little short comments, but it's really about posting photos. So you post photos of something that you see or something you uh, run into in your day. It's it's fun. It's got these photo filters that make the photos look all crazy and old or Polaroidy or whatever. Um, you know, you can, uh, you can jump on there and, uh, and see some good stuff. I've been watching Chuck take pictures of his, uh, his neighborhood. It's, it's fun. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a simple thing. It's, um, you know, nothing too crazy, but it's free. It's on the app store. It's called Instagram and, uh, yeah, check it out. All righty. That's it for today. Thanks to everybody for being here. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure that we won't be back before Thanksgiving, which in the United States is next week. So I want to say happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners out there um, and to you guys as well. Uh, let's go around the table so you guys can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave, where can people find you? Um, I'm at gaming.unlv.edu and diascast.com. And check my email. I've just gotten a, a breaking news update. The M Life Band is going to go on stage at the Bellagio Employee Celebration ten minutes from now. So I am there. you heard it here first, and I am amazed that they have such a thing called the M Life Band. The oh, life. Wait, that, oh, life. oh wait, that that's been delayed by three months. <laughs> but um, all right, Mr. Jeff Simpson, what about you? Where can people track you down? On the uh, two-way hard three blog, and uh, my bonus Thanksgiving sure bet. Stuffing. Yes, I agree. I agree. Not tequila-based, but still very tasty. Chuck Monster, where can people track you down? People can find me in the M-Life Monopoly room at the bottom of Bellagio, where I'm hoping to land on free parking, which apparently contains two free Veer condos. Yes. If you're, uh, if you're looking for the M-Life room and you get to Aria, you've gone too far. So turn around and go back to Bellagio. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Talk to you later. All right. Adios. Happy okay. Thanksgiving, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you.